Welcome to Accessibility, a podcast brought to you by the Assistive Technology Center at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We'll be taking an in-depth look at various technologies on and off campus and interviewing leading professionals in the field. Our goal is to help students and faculty learn about new technologies so that you can lead independent lives and access your academics. Hi, everybody. Hey. How are you doing? Hopefully doing well. This is Josh. I'm Kelsey. Welcome to another episode of Accessibilities. We've got a great, great show lined up for you today, uh, primarily focusing on the field of STEM. Which is science, technology, engineering, and math. We are talking with Dr. Fernando Arbitorio with the company uh, Sunu. The Sunu Band is a navigational aid uh, which provides haptic feedback to directionally maneuver a person who is blind or visually impaired uh, around obstacles and uh, through complex pathways. We're really excited because he also has a background in chemistry and physics, which is really great because he also is a person who has low vision himself. Which is very rare in in the chemistry field, so it's very good to be able to pick his brain on a whole range of subjects. We are very excited about uh, presenting this interview to you. And if you ever need to contact us, you can email us at atc at umass.edu or contact us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at UMassATC. We really appreciate you listening and all of your feedback and shares. Enjoy. Enjoy. Bye. Hey, everyone. We hope you will enjoy this episode of Accessibilities. We just wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about a new higher education accessibility testing task force on Slack. Slack is a communication hub where people from all over the world can come together to discuss a range of topics. To find out more about the hosting platform Slack, check out www.slack.com. In terms of the Higher Education Accessibility Testing Task Force, though, we hope you want to join. You have to be affiliated with a university in some way, though. This is an opportunity to, in real time, share accessibility testing and user experience results for a variety of software, tools, services, and more. It is a way to reduce duplicated efforts in accessibility testing, as well as leverage a variety of skills from different accessibility professionals working in higher education. This task force is currently not accepting vendors. If you are interested in joining the Slack channel, please contact Kelsey Hall at khall.consultant at gmail.com for a personal invitation. We hope you'll join us. Thanks, everybody who's tuned in to this and all episodes of Accessibilities. Welcome back again. We have another awesome episode lined up for you. We are, we're talking with Dr. Fernando Albertorio. Uh, Fernando is the creator of the Sunaband is a wearable device that will provide guidance for a visually impaired uh, or blind user when they are navigating around the world. Fernando, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, it's a great pleasure being here. So thank you so much. Um, and also, just for any of our listeners, Fernando, you're you're local. We're based in Massachusetts, and I'm not sure if we've had a we've had New England people, but not another Massachusetts person. So. Yeah, this is a first. Yeah. So oh, that's great. We're excited to have Massachusetts representing. You're based out of Boston, right? 
That's right. So I'm based in, in the Boston area. Um, actually, just out, out of Somerville. Oh, great. Awesome. So yeah. we're extra excited to have you as a local. <laughs> great. Thank you. That's great. So um, getting started, if you could give us some background on yourself, Fernando, your technical background, your education, how did you get into this field? Who are you? Well, I was born in Puerto Rico, and I was born uh, with albinism. So I, since birth, I'm, I'm legally blind, low vision. With albinism, you know, you have the lack of pigment in the eye. So I also have nystagmus and light sensitivity to go along with my low vision. Since an early age, um, I've always been interested in science. It's probably because of my dad. Um, actually, it's most likely because of my dad, who loves technology. Mm -hmm. uh, he loves gadgets and always had a very... Uh, passion for science, uh, very passionate about science. So I got that from my dad uh, early on. Uh, and education-wise, um, you know, I learned from an early on uh, back in the 80s, and I'm going to date myself here, um, <laughs> when my mom and I went to, uh, to get uh, AIDS for low vision, uh, we were given, given a flashlight and a magnifying glass. Oh, wow. And pretty much told, you know, here you go. <laughs> Um, oh, wow. I learned, some low tech assistive technology right there. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, uh, there wasn't much back in the 80s. Um, we learned quickly on that my eyes, uh, my sight responds really well to magnification. So that's great. And mm. that was a plus. But I also learned from my mom um, how to advocate for, for myself. So and to find situations and find creative solutions to situations. Um, another important lesson I learned is how to teach others about my condition, about my vision. Mm -hmm. and, and that actually helped me a lot throughout my early education and, and throughout high school. Um, because, you know, I, I, when I explained my vision to teachers, then it, they would understand why I need to be in, in a certain place in the classroom or why I would need someone to, to help me read notes off the board or get notebooks. And so... Um, my teachers were great. They they all went beyond, uh, above and beyond, um, to to make sure that I had equal access to everything in in, in the classroom. That's awesome. Yes. Uh, you know, and that was all in Puerto Rico. This was in Florida and 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 in Puerto Rico. You know, wow. we we didn't wow. have we didn't have fancy gadgets. We, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, the CCTVs were super expensive and bulky yeah. and we, we couldn't, you know, we, we didn't get access to those and we chose not to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we relied on, my best tool was a handheld, is it is still a handheld magnifier um, that I can get for $25 and it works brilliantly for me. It works great. Um, and then early on, I mean, later on in my education, uh, when I went to university, then I got the bioptic um, eyeglasses. Oh. Wow, that's so interesting. I mean, it, we speak so much with people who are working on like really high tech technology. And I mean, you're going to get into the Sinuban later, which is a little bit more high tech, of course, than the magnifying glass. But it's kind of nice to also hear about people using lower tech solutions because they're just as valuable and just as viable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what I mean? It's a, yeah. It's, the, important, the important lesson that I learned uh, early on is understanding uh, the technology uh, being open to trying it out and then understanding that just because you have a gadget, it's not the end all be all. Uh, right. You have to learn how to adapt to it, uh, to train with it, to become proficient at it, invest the time into doing that. And sometimes it, it requires a bit of hacking and, you know, figuring, figuring things out on your own. Yeah. And that happened to me a lot when I went to university and, you know, again, my love of science and my interest in STEM uh, led me to pursue my degree in chemistry. 
Yeah. And I remember I was just going through the questions and I was going through your questions. I remember my, my first few days in, in my degree program, um, one of my instructors basically came up to me and suggested, you know, Fernando, you shouldn't be studying chemistry. You should, you know, because of your low vision, I don't think you're going to be able to complete this degree. Um, it, there's a lot of lab work that's required. She, she was trying to dissuade me to not to study chemistry and to go into something more safe like accounting. <laughs> oh my goodness. And was this, um, and I see, I'm so excited we're talking to you because at Closing the Gap, we spent some time talking about this and how, you know, especially in STEM and higher education, there there tends to be a lot of people, professors, faculty kind of dissuading um, people who are blind or low vision, especially in, in lab components to courses. And uh, I, I just loved talking to you about it because I think the big thing was that you were like, nah, that's not going to happen. I'm going to do what I want to do. <laughs> and it was Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, again, I, I got this from my mom, um, you know, <laughs> I had to advocate for myself. And, um, you know, later on in life, I learned how to take that, that, those attitudes and turn them into opportunities. And my opportunity was to be the best um, student in that lab. Uh, I actually graduated <laughs> with honors in chemistry and my degree, and I completed all my lab work and my coursework in four years. And um, taking that experience, you know, throughout, I, I did have to put in the hard work. And there yeah, was a of course. hard work in there. And again, I had to use tools, uh, had to adapt to situations, and I had to work safely in the lab. And, you know, and I had to develop a lot of skills, uh, hand-eye coordination to, to, to be able to do the lab work and, and get the good grades and, and complete the courses. Uh, so there is a lot of hard work involved. Yeah. Not just, I'm going to do this, but you have to be <laughs> open to trying new things and you have to be open to those new experiences and taking those attitudes and turning them, them into opportunities. Um, I completed my, B, my bachelor's in chemistry and then I went and did a PhD in chemistry as well at Texas A&M, and from there, I went to Harvard to do my postdoctorate degree in physics. Wow. wow. So I've had a, a very um, interesting career in science. I've contributed to many fields of science. I had a very productive time as a scientist, published a lot of articles in, in that field, and I also, I also uh, was a teacher, so I, I taught the actual lab courses, um, and that was fun. And I yeah. taught various courses uh, throughout my academic career. So kind of going back to, you know, when you were speaking to this woman, this faculty member who was like, maybe you should be an accountant. Um, you know, you were talking about you, you changed some of the attitudes and the perceptions into opportunities. And, you know, you have a lot of control over, you know, your own perceptions and your own ability to kind of uh, change your thoughts around a particular person or situation. How did you translate that to a faculty member like that who was just like your your vision is going to impede your ability to complete this like how did you kind of work with that person and what was the end result for that it's it's something that you have to do i mean throughout life you're going to find people who will have different attitudes and especially when you're low vision sometimes it could be an invisible disability, so people may not even know, they may not even have all the information. And this is why, I, mean, I guess naturally being an educator myself, I like to teach people about my condition, about albinism, about my low vision. Uh, so I find that as an opportunity to also teach them, they in turn develop more empathy. Yeah. And when they see me thriving in the lab, they saw me thriving in my courses, um, they saw me putting in the extra work to be able to do all that's required within a lab course and excel compared to my peers, 
then they would naturally get interested. Right. Uh, those those instructors who who were naturally drawn and more interested, um, you know, to this day I have really great great relationship with, uh, with them. Um, but it's something that I found in my career, even after leaving my bachelor's and finishing my bachelor's, in all the steps of my career, I would always find a boss or a supervisor who would who would question, you know, whether or not, you know, I would, you know, be should I be working in the lab? It's natural. Um, I guess given what they know and given that it's it's a place where it's not the most accessible place in the world um, right. you do have a, a component of danger and with uh, with the chemicals or with equipment in the, in the laboratory and with this, with expensive equipment that you have to deal with and so then I basically every time would take that and turn it into an opportunity uh, turn that into a conversation where we're both getting empathy for each other and understanding that you do have to do the work. You have to, you have to show, show up and, and, uh, and, and show that you can do it. This is such a critical conversation. Um, just, you know, listening to you speak about your experience and also speak about it in a positive way, because I think in life, as you're kind of saying, you know, you do that, you have to do this regardless. Like it's all trial and error. And um, I really just like, like what you're, how you're kind of, framing it. I think it's really helpful. And I, I hope that we do get STEM faculty listening to this because one of the things that we've run into just at every university we visit or see is, is and outside of STEM as well, is just the idea that if I haven't experienced it, I can't imagine it. And people spend so much time trying to imagine it. And it's really hard to imagine the experience of someone that you don't experience and who you aren't. So um, it's really interesting to hear you kind of talk about it in like a trial and error and you just have to show up and do it. I think that's so true. Um, people just have to put those biases aside and be willing to do the work, both sides. Right. And when you open up a conversation, you open a dialogue, um, you've got to be willing to empathize as well. Um, and, and it helps us to create empathy, to Understand and empathy, you know, I'm not talking about like uh, taking pity on somebody or or let's lower the bar for this person. What I'm talking about is just trying to gain a bit more understanding what it's like to work in their shoes. Right. And, and mm -hmm. then uh, even though they have to hack solutions, they have to work around that problem a little bit differently um, to hold that bar, to hold that person accountable, just like everyone else. Right. Absolutely. Definitely. And that's how we also get so many unique, I, I, I will prepare myself to transition to this new band, but I just want to talk to you about STEM all day. But, uh, you know, that's how we get really unique <laughs> um, and interesting, um, co like changes and concepts and growth in different fields is when you have people who maybe don't meet the traditional what, what people anticipate as to be like a traditional person studying chemistry, when you get someone with, you know, like physical diversity, neurodiversity, whatever it might be, they bring something new to the table. And then you get these really interesting creations or new ways to go about things. And I just think that's so invaluable. Um, that's where the excitement comes in, especially yeah. in experimental sciences and STEM. I mean, that's where, that's where the magic happens, I think, in right. you know, different ways of thinking, different approaches. Um, you know, since leaving academia and transitioning onto the world of technology and startups, I still have kind of kept in touch with uh, with that area by by either volunteering for for organizations that do provide STEM opportunities for for children who are blind or visually impaired, yeah. as well as through the, the makerspace that I'm a co-founder um, uh, and, and involved in here in, in the city of Somerville. 
um, we have a makerspace and, you know, oh, we've cool. done, I've done projects with the Perkins School for the Blind mm. for their robotics uh, weekend and, you know, hosting activities uh, for, for blind and, and low vision kids to, to get exposed to, you know, the makerspace environment and, and have an opportunity to, to, to create and make. That's so neat. <laughs> I love That's it. so cute. I'm actually familiar with your work in, in that area. I, I'm affiliated with the Carroll Center for the Blind, and so I, you know, I've, I've heard of, of what you've been doing through some contacts there. Uh, yeah, I wish I could do more. I just uh, wish to have the more time to do that 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 type of work, and we're we're we're, we're getting there. But um, it, it, it's important to to be able to create these opportunities and to make them inclusive for for everyone. Absolutely. Sure. I'd like to, to return to uh, something that you, you briefly mentioned, and that's the fact that you taught all of these courses. You taught all of these labs that you were a student in. And I'm curious, um, one, did you yourself as a teacher have blind students or visually impaired students who came to you, um, you know, looking to, to get into the STEM field? Uh, uh, and then also, how do you feel that learning things non-visually allowed you to then give a, a unique experience to your students that you were then turning around and teaching these labs to? Yeah, so um, interestingly enough, throughout my uh, academic career, teaching career, I, I haven't had a student who is uh, visually impaired in my lab, but then again, we have students with different abilities and different talents, and mm. so then using that approach, my, my approach to when I'm doing certain type of lab work, um, to engage in my different senses. For instance, you know, um, obviously a sense of smell is important in the lab, not just for safety, but also for, for sometimes understanding when, when a chemical process is happening. Um, the sense of maybe you could use obviously the sense of touch, but sometimes things get hot, knowing that a certain chemical reaction is taking place and knowing where you are in, in, in your, in your uh, lab experiment. Uh, so engaging the other senses as well, uh, along with the uh, sense of sight. Um, is, is very important. And then using some of those tools that, that I learned in order to, to make something work for me um, has translated sometimes into helping students with different abilities in the lab. You know, some people, it, there's a lot of hand-eye coordination. There's a lot of, um, you know, technique uh, that goes into, into, into doing the work, in the, in, not just in the academic lab environment, but also in the research lab. And so I, I've learned a lot of of how to translate that so that it's helpful for, for other people that's that's great yeah it's um mm. you know it's it's always a learning experience and we're frequently saying you know once you've met one person with a disability you've met one person with a disability so it's like leveraging the knowledge that a student has about themselves and what works <laughs> and doesn't work is also like invaluable just completely mm -hmm. invaluable so that is it's just so great to hear like we don't always, you know, have the opportunity to speak with people um, who are in the, the science field who have different disabilities just because, you know, um, especially in STEM, I think it's something like one per less than 1% of people with disabilities make it to the level of education that you did. Um, and I just, it's, we need more diversity in STEM. <laughs> I totally agree. We need, we need much more diversity. Uh, we talk about diversity from the point of view of ethnic, you know, whether you're Latino, yeah. or whether you're 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 from, you know, uh, either African American or, or other other ethnicities or other regions. Um, you know, we talk about that type of diversity, um, but we also need to discuss, uh, have open discussions and dialogue about 
um, you know, different people with different abilities going into the sciences as well. Absolutely. Sure. That's across the board. We completely agree with you on that. Given that you've spent a long time in this field, how would you suggest that people who want to start to have these conversations open those doors and, and start these dialogues? I think it takes a community effort. I think that we need to get people involved who are doing the programs for kids in STEM. Um, you know, we have now places like Maker Place, Maker Spaces. Uh, we have other opportunities now to kind of link people up in conversation, whether it's through community events, um, events in our own local towns or cities, uh, as well as then events at the university, so that we get faculty involved. Um, they get they get that experience to see folks um, in the community working, but then also having that big component of inclusion. Whether you know, imagine if we could take um, faculty to um, a a maker event for the blind and visually impaired, and and see the end result of folks making robots and those robots doing stuff. Um, that would be pretty cool, as well as getting the folks interested in STEM. Um, showing them that there are also people who can do this. Uh, one event that I went to a couple of years ago had uh, professors or researchers who who were blind themselves, and you know one person would work at um, you know the the Oceanographic Institute, another person worked at, at another place. Um, there were one was a statistician, the other one was a researcher. But showing that folks uh, with blindness or low vision can have a career in sciences uh, was super inspiring, and I found I found it very exciting too. That it is exciting. It's it's like just the it's proof, I guess, which is so crazy that it needs to happen that way. But but yeah, it, people actively being out there and engaging in the community that they think maybe can't do what they are doing is exactly critical. So cool. Um, Somebody should create a Slack channel and we can get everybody involved in this community <laughs> in oh, one place. Man. We do love our Slack, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, so, great way well, to get community people together. But yeah. <laughs> so transitioning, I guess, um, to a, a related part of this field, uh, technology. What got you into that? How And how did you find the coursework for, for that? Um, were your experiences just as positive in in pursuing your your tech work yeah so i i was always drawn towards sensors when i when i when i finished my bachelor's degree and went on to work in research for the government and then on to my phd and in, in postdoctorate at harvard i was naturally drawn to the area of sensor technology and i worked on a variety of projects involving sensors whether they were chemical or on a chip um devices uh, that was always very appealing to me, very interesting. Uh, and then back in 2011, I went and looked out for a course at MIT called the Nuts and Bolts of Entrepreneurship. I went and I, you know, uh, through a friend of mine, um, you know, went into that workshop, came out thinking, you know, wow, I'm much more of an entrepreneur than I am a scientist, actually, because I like to see the natural <laughs> media application of what I create in the hands of people, in the hands of users. And right around that time, I, I went and co-founded my first startup, uh, technology company, and then you know worked on that for a couple of years. Uh, we we sold one of my products um, um, there, and and I back around in 2014, then I met the two initial inventors of Sunu um, at a technology competition called the Mass Challenge here in Boston. Gotcha. Okay. So, so Sunu was a project that was already in development before you came on board? 
Yeah, Sunu was created in 2012, 2000, uh, late 2012, by two young uh, engineers called Marco Trujillo, my colleagues Marco Trujillo and Kuali Padilla. Uh, Marco and Kuali um, actually started Sunu at, as part of a community service project at a school for the blind in Guadalajara. Um, both Mark and Quali were finishing their degrees in mechatronics engineering, and part of their degree requirement uh, needed, um, part of their degree required that Mark and Quali uh, complete a community service project, and they chose to do this at a school for the blind children. Hmm. When Mark and Quali were at the school, actually, so, sorry, I'm going to back up a bit. Um, both Mark and Quali had been creating technologies and competing in uh, prototypes and inventions throughout their, throughout their education. Um, they've naturally have been drawn towards, towards the assistive technologies and they had created like six award-winning technologies, both in Mexico and on the world stage. Oh, wow. So they were always keen on creating assistive devices, very creative, very talented. And not only that, but they would compete them and win, win awards for these technologies. Wow. Well, they were at their community service project. Oh, sorry. Um, so they were at their community service project and they were noticing how kids who are blind um, vary by age in terms of their activity, meaning that the young kids would run around and they would have bumps and, you know, and some collisions but they would try to be active and yet the older ones were much more, were much more sedentary. And one of the things that they learned is that, you know, as you get more accidents, you know, a person loses their confidence and then that gradually leads to less activity. And they were also very curious about how orientation and mobility happened. Mm. You know, how's that, how's that uh, provided through instruction and training mm -hmm. and observing these two things, Mark and Kali decided to bring one of the early prototypes of the Sunu band to the school just to see what kids would think about it and how they would engage with it. And that actually caught everyone by surprise because the kids in the school were using it to solve makeshift mazes. They were using it in play and they were asking to use it in their O&M lesson. So every Thursday they would, they would um, go to their O&M lesson. And even though it was hard and difficult for the kids, they would always look forward to that Thursday lesson. And so then the teacher, their O&M instructor would actually bring this prototype, this you know, device with uh, sonar and batteries and a wire uh, with the vibrating motors, obviously, and they would bring it to the lesson and have kids try it out. And they noticed immediately some changes. Well, that caught the attention of the parents, the, the teachers, um, everyone at the school. <laughs> and they asked Marco and Quali to, to create more of these devices, even crowdfunded the first development. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. That's so cool. So for our, for, I'm just going to interject and just for our listeners who are not aware, O&M uh, is a, a blind, uh, low vision term in, in our community. It means uh, it's, it's an orientation mobility specialist. It's somebody who teaches uh, initially it's cane technique for those who are cane users and then also how to orient yourself and, and navigate around in different areas. So uh, street crossings and outdoors and indoors and how to find doorways and you know, all of these little proper techniques that um, we use to navigate around. Um, so there, you know, there, it, there, there is a science to how a blind person navigates. You know, we, we, in a sense, go to school for that, just like anything else, you know. Um, when you're looking at, at the development of SUNU, um, was O&M, would you say then that it's crucial to how 
Sunu provides its feedback for users? Absolutely. So, um, and as you mentioned, there's a science behind O&M. We were, from the very beginning, as Sunu happened, uh, we were always drawn to that concepts of learning you know, what, it, what, what does it mean to take O&M? You know, what are the principles behind it? How does that improve autonomy and independence for, for a person who's visually impaired? Um, as well as then the technology component to, to the device. You know, what, what, this, what can this device do for a person who, who is low vision or, or, or blind? And so with that in mind, because we started working right alongside our intended users and started to iterate, um, it began a process of iteration and learning. Marco and Quatley decided to go in and learn more and seek help from experts, from organizations, from, you know, even the individual users. And that brought in a lot of under, uh, learning. Um, we still do this to this very day. We love doing that. It's a very important part of our, of, of our company. Um, but it's a very uh, orientation and mobility skill set uh, is a very important component of, of what we do here uh, at Sunu. So our vision is to create technology. You know, the, the, the main question is, you know, can we create technologies that augment our human abilities? It's not just about closing the gap. It's can we take people way further beyond that gap in terms of their abilities and then obviously leading into independence and a more fulfilled lifestyle? Sure. Um, yeah. So looking when, when you're looking at, at technologies that are that are on the market, you know, I, I guess what you would what you, you might call competition to the Sunu. Um, I'm thinking things like a, a GPS app on a smartphone. I know there are several out there. Um, smart glass technology, wearables like that, that, you know, that have really kind of taken off in terms of everybody's trying to solve the navigation element. Right. What is it that sets Sunu apart from all of these? other ways and means by which a, a blind person could navigate. And also, right. I guess, if I can kind of interject with that too, I don't know if maybe you want to give like an explanation of what the Sunu Band is Great. for our listeners. Yeah. yeah so, so, so let's start with what, what, what is actually Sunu Band. Um, so Sunu Band is a smartwatch technology that combines sonar or echolocation with haptic vibration feedback to inform the individual traveler about obstacles, objects that are within the environment. Haptic vibration feedback basically helps guide that person's way around these obstacles, and ultimately, number one, reduce accidents or unwanted collisions, um, augment awareness, obviously, and then empower that person with a sense of independence. The Sunu Band acts as a complement, and this is very important, it acts as a complement to the white cane, the guide dog, or a person's residual vision. Like myself, I'm low vision. I don't use a cane, but I use a sinew band to detect tree branches, obstacles that are above my waist. So these are obstacles that could hit my chest, that could hit my head. With the sinew band, I'm getting much more awareness about these obstacles even before I bump into them, and I'm able to, to safely navigate around them. Uh, and so... As a person with low vision, it's complementing and enhancing my, my, my level of perception. What's different, and going to your question uh, about why are we different, uh, first of all, we are, you can think of Sunu as a human augmentation device. It, it augments our abilities, but it also then augments and complements the person's orientation and mobility skill set. You know, we're not here to develop a device that requires you to learn additional O&M or, or any other skills. 
um, it's a technology that should fit in with the skill set that you already have and then complement and augment that. Gotcha. Okay. And it's really nondescript too. Um, when I saw it at Closing the Gap, and so everyone listening knows Closing in the Gap is a conference that happens that brings together people in the field of education, special education, assistive technology, all of that. Um, and it's in Minnesota. And that's where actually I met Fernando. But um, the band itself is just, it's really nondescript. It kind of looks like a Fitbit, I guess is the best way to explain it. It's thin and it's like, it just, it hangs out on your wrist and I tried it on and I was able to kind of move around with it. And, um, it really wasn't anything, um, that looked, well, I, I liked it because it didn't look quote unquote weird. Right. And, and a lot of folks, and one thing that we should know is that because the senior band can, can provide value for those who are low vision or for folks who are partially sighted, maybe someone's losing their, their vision, and as well folks who are completely blind. On one side of the spectrum, we have folks who are dealing with that vision loss and they're, they're, you know, want, they're rejecting you know, the traditional aids because they still don't see themselves as completely blind. And yet they are at risk to have accidents, to have bumps. Similar to the kids that I mentioned in the story uh, with Marco and Quali, you know, people can become gradually inactive if they keep having bumps and, and collisions and accidents because it affects your self-confidence. With what we do, you know, with, with that, you know, you get frustration, you get anxiety, even just getting out, outside of your house. Sunu, what Sunuban is, is doing is it's reducing that frustration and anxiety. Um, it's providing awareness in a way that's discreet for the individual so they don't feel that they're using a traditional aid for those people who really care about that, but yet they're getting that awareness, they're avoiding those accidents and they can continue to, to use it right alongside with their residual eyesight or their low vision and continue doing the things that they like doing. That's amazing, that's and, amazing. Um, could you just talk a little bit about the feedback that people receive, like what does that, what do they experience, like, depending on what's around them and in space? Great question. So the Sunuband, you know, as I mentioned, uses the sonar echolocation. And the echolocation, basically, um, it's ultrasonic waves that are emitted from a, a transducer that's on the Sunuband. And those um, ultrasonic waves detect obstacles or objects in the environment. And then, um, basically, the Sunuband detects the echo. So very similar to how the bats navigate in the wild or dolphins. Um, it's using the same principle of echolocation, except on a, on a, on a digital form um, in, in, in the hardware. Now, the haptic vibration feedback that you get on the Sunu band, in the most simplest way, it tells you about your proximity to obstacles. So as you get closer to an obstacle, you feel more vibration pulses. And these vibration pulses become more and more frequent as you get closer until you get to a certain, as, until you get close enough that they become constant. So these vibration pulses are communicating um, to the user their, their closeness to the obstacle, but it's really an information about, you know, I'm getting closer, I can still navigate my way around it, or I've gotten to the point where I'm really close by, then I should stop or interrogate the obstacle and then figure out what I'm gonna do next. And so it's through haptics, we're providing useful information for that individual in real time so they can understand what's the obstacle in front of them. And there is, um, a, there is a connection to an application on the phone, correct? 
That's right. So we extend this to, to, to the multifunctional part, right? So our mobile app allows the users to receive updates to the smartwatch. So you can use it as a timepiece. So you can tell vibrations. I'm sorry, you can tell time through vibration. I'm going to stop for a second and say that again. You can use it as a timepiece so that users can tell the time through vibrations. You can use the app to access other features of the Sinuban, like a compass and, nav and navigation and tools. Uh, for instance, you can um, use the Sinuban to tell if you're walking north, south, east, or west. And then as well as use our Place Finder app to know about places that are around you, points of interest. Uh, so think of the Sinuban as a multi-tool. And whenever you're not using the sonar, you could be using the compass, or folks could be using the place finder to know about places that are around them. And it was really interesting um, when I tried it on, you know, one of our questions for you is really about the difference between indoors and outdoors. And when I tried it on, we are literally in the midst of a, a concrete building, <laughs> um, I think is the best way to describe where we are standing at, in a vendor hall. Um, so there are tons of people, tons of like booths and tables and barriers and all sorts of things. Um, and I basically just spun around in a circle and it told me, you know, like as I was spinning around, it was telling me like what direction things on the outside of that building were like coffee shops and you could like adjust that. And I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, thank you. And, and, and these, um, our mobile app allows the user to customize. So you can customize all these features and functions on the Sinuban. So you mentioned the indoor and outdoor mode. Uh, we do have these, these two different sonar modes, which allow the user to work specifically in the indoor setting where the person needs to know about obstacles, but also needs to find gaps or they need to follow along in a line. And they're able to do that without having someone telling them when to move in the line. And so therefore reducing that stress of being in the queue. But as well as by swiping on the touchpad, you can basically select the outdoor mode and then you know, have more sensitivity, longer range, so that you can detect obstacles outdoors like tree branches and bushes and, and thin signposts, et cetera. Hmm. That's amazing that it can, it, the signpost thing, especially I know myself walking around, I've taken out a couple signs in my day. You know. <laughs> Um, when you're when you're discussing uh, this method of, of navigation, um, are there any parts of, of navigating that either have taken users a, a while to adapt to, or or um, I guess more negative aspects of of this this form of of navigating with with a, a haptic device like this? So, um, and that, that's a great question. And again, you know, I, I go back to when I was growing up, um, when, you know, learning that technology tools, um, just because I have a tool doesn't mean that everything is magically resolved. Um, you have to put in some work and effort into learning it, into mastering it. Um, with the Sinuban, it's no different. Um, but we supplement that with training and guides that are prepared by experts and O&M. Uh, we're partnered with World Access for the Blind. Um, and Daniel Kish, a president of World Access for the Blind, and preparing our online um, tutorials around mobility and around how to use the Sinuban in different scenarios. Um, it takes practice, uh, but our device has, has been found to be quite intuitive within comparison to other devices that are out on the market. 
Um, but that said, you know, it takes practice, it takes effort. Um, and identifying those um, scenarios where the Sindhu band could be very helpful for an individual. Um, again, you know, we're complementing travel with the white cane and the guide dog. But in certain scenarios where you're like in a line at a coffee shop or at the airport and you need to know when to move up in the line, you know, sometimes your dog, your guide dog may take you around the line and take sure. you inadvertently. He's doing his job. The dog is doing is perfectly doing their job. But then with the Sinuban, you can work with the Sinuban in that scenario, learn how to use it to know how to move in that line and reduce that anxiety and stress in that moment. And so people have, I've utilized it. They explored in different scenarios, whether indoors or outdoors. Um, we always, we're always collecting feedback and user stories and learning from, uh, from our community. Um, we're right now in, in 50 different countries. Um, you know, it, it's really exciting. Uh, so we're getting a lot of feedback, a lot of interesting stories, and, and which are super helpful for us and, and as we continue developing the technology. So let's let's explore that for a minute. Are there any user stories or, or testimonials or use cases, um, first of all, that that have stuck out um, and and helped you in developing the the progress of of Sunu? And then uh, secondly, uh, any any use cases that were com completely new to you, and, and you're, you're you know you're you're kind of uh, seeing Sunu used in an area where you may not have thought that it, it could be used sure absolutely so um and, and the use cases that were that, that we got a lot of learning from um even early on in our pilots we, we did a lot of pilot testing when we we're developing sooner with with uh, institutions like perkins school for the blind here in in, in watertown um, we also worked with the national federation of the blind in baltimore um, so we got a lot of learnings um, and use cases from from those pilots and we learned about the scenario of the queue of, of indoor navigation when you're when you're trailing somebody or you're 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 in a line or you're inside a guide so that helped us develop uh, and improve our indoor indoor mode uh, you know adjusting the sensitivity of the of the sonar echolocation feature on the Sunu band to work even more optimally within within those indoor scenarios, um, as well as hearing from individuals who were asking about other features. You know, could I have a compass? I mean, sometimes I have trouble knowing if I'm walking north or if I'm walking in the right direction. And so having that our ear in the community, we're able to then get back this information, the, the, this feedback, these questions, and then turn them into actual applications that we go out and we test and we gain more feedback and we iterate. And so our Compass, our Place Finder app have come through those user interactions, through those user stories, um, engaging our community and hearing back from them about what they need and what they would like to see in, in their navigation. Um, we learn a lot about echolocators as well, people with advanced um, orientation and mobility skills how they use echolocation, their, their, their human form of echolocation, how they're applying it every day, and then when, what are the limits to that? You know, for instance, if they're in a crowded place, then applying their echolocation skill becomes difficult because of the noise environment. Mm -hmm. And then that's where the senior band can, can come in and augment their perception, right? So then they're going to the digital form of echolocation. They're getting their perception, you know, augmenting their, their awareness there. Um, and working in that environment. 
Um, and then also surprising things that we've learned is, you know, users wanting to learn more about corners, about edges, uh, and we're developing new technology and, and enhancing our our core around echolocation so that users can, you know, know about edges, uh, improve detection of doorways. There's a lot that you can do with echolocation, and it's a very exciting area. Um, if we look at the work from Leslie Kay and the K-Sonar, you know, you could tell about the hardness or different kinds of objects. You can tell between a human and a wall. And so there's a lot more to be gained from echolocation and a lot of opportunity there. That's awesome. That's um, so interesting. Thank you. I feel like there, and this is like totally not related, but very much related. I, I feel like there would be some really interesting integrations with virtual reality for something like this. Oh, um, virtual reality, definitely. I mean, we use augmented reality to provide you navigation. Um, so when you, when you select a place that you're interested from your Place Finder app, uh, let's say you want to go to the Starbucks at the corner um, or down, down, down the city, um, you can tap in to receive navigation information. And we're providing that through haptics and vibrations, but it's a form of augmented reality that will then take you turn by turn to that final destination. Yeah, I um, I think about like also integrating, you know, virtual reality games and things like um, at our on our campus, we have a digital media lab that also has um, a virtual reality room or space that people can come and experience it. And it would be really neat to kind of think about the use of echolocation, but also haptics in terms of virtual reality experiences, whether it has to do with experiencing another place or preparing to enter a new space or location and kind of working through some of those barriers ahead of time like almost like a preparation but also from a completely different side of things but like experiencing gaming through haptics and echolocation and that's an exciting area that that, that, that you mentioned about gaming um you know making making more games accessible for for yeah. black television and people uh, you know, we're definitely, you know, the sky's the limit here when it comes to Cineband because, you know, it's a smartwatch. It could, you can, you can add more applications, you know, to, to the technology. Um, you know, you want to keep an eye out for that. Um, we're always developing. We're always doing our research and development um, into haptics, uh, again, into like, you know, uh, VR or, or, or AI. Um, and how we can provide more information to the individual about the environment. But whether it's for navigation, mobility, or for gaming, um, we definitely have an amazing platform that we can build upon. When a user is, is navigating with Sunu, so like for instance, I'm, I'm the type of user who I like to go through a route maybe once or twice, get a feel for if I'm outside, what the cross streets are, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and and you know and and then from that point just kind of once i've got the route down using a gps app or something that will give me that information then i kind of go it alone without without any guided assistance um do you find that uh people receive that same type of feedback to where they can map out a route and then uh phase sunu out or do you find that people once they start navigating with Sudo, they just build that into what they do on a daily basis? Well, we're hearing very interesting stories from our users, and, and a lot of our, our users of the Sinuban uh, express it as an extension of their senses. Hmm. And what's interesting about this is that 
uh, as a person is utilizing the sinew band, sometimes, you know, as an extension like of your hearing or, or your residual or your other senses, uh, it's working in combination with what you already have. Um, and then, you know, maybe you're using this, maybe they're using the sinew band in, in this, in a particular scenario, walking down a sidewalk, um, and they know exactly when they need to pay attention to the device so that they can respond to, say, um, an obstacle that was placed in the way of the sidewalk, like during trash day. Um, this is especially important around here in Boston where, you know, on certain days you'll have trash cans littering the entire sidewalk. And on that day, things can become very, a, a normal route that you think you know very well can all of a sudden become a complete maze. And those are scenarios where it's super helpful. Um, or sometimes when you have the unexpected, like construction um, barriers put up or, or things that, that are alongside a building. Um, again, what we're finding is that a lot of people are internalizing the use of the Sinuban into their skill set, and they always think about it as like an extension of, of, of what they have already. There's so much that can be done with this type of technology. It's really incredible. Um, my brain is kind of just going in like a million different directions <laughs> for all the possibilities. <laughs> when, when you think about the release of, of Sunu, you know, getting it into the widest amount of hands possible, I know you said you've, you've worked with NFB. Have you thought about partnering with state agencies for the blind or anything like that? You know, because I know that O&M is, is handled sometimes through those state agencies. Yes, yeah, so, uh, we're partnered with a few um, with state agencies around the country, and mm -hmm. we're always building up our partnerships. So we love to work with state agencies, or uh, whether also with uh, programs, um, you know, Department of Education, um, you know, also the Veterans Affairs um, uh, with their uh, blind and low vision clinics as well. Uh, we're working with uh, the VA in uh, I think in New York um, and and in other states as well. So that's very exciting. Uh, we're definitely you know, working with state and federal programs. Yeah, that's great. And we're always interested, um, you know, so if, if we have, um, if there are any VIS coordinators um, out there in the audience <laughs> who want to learn about SUNU, uh, we're always definitely interested in, in, uh, in speaking with you and, and getting uh, you a SUNU band so you can try it out for your program. Yeah, absolutely. And how, how long is the battery life for something like this? Great question. Yeah, with, uh, with regular use, the battery lasts between one to two days. Oh, wow. Wow. That's pretty good. Wow, that's really <laughs> impressive. And it recharges within um, about an hour and a half to two hours. It, it reaches oh, full charge. That's uh, great. It's using a micro USB to USB cable that you plug in, and then you can plug it into any standard uh, USB power adapter. Okay. So regularly, regular use, you're thinking, say, a couple hours a day, or, or what, what would be a, a typical regular use case? Yeah, so regular uses, I'm, I'm using the Sydney band in different scenarios, like when I'm walking down to the T, or I'm using it in a, in a coffee shop, or navigating a certain scenario, I'll activate the sonar sensor, um, utilize that, and then I'll turn it off, uh, or, or put that to sleep. Um, then I'm going to use the watch, or I'll need to open up our Place Finder app to know things, you know, to know where I'm going to have lunch. Um, those uh, continuous uh, used throughout the day of various apps and features of the Cineband. So that's like, that's pretty decent usage that, yeah. you, you know, that you can get out of it um, without having to recharge. <laughs> that's great. That's huge. And what's the cost for the Cineband? Yeah, the retail cost for the Cineband is $299. 
And that's just like a one-time cost? That's a one-time cost, right? Right now, people, <laughs> uh, when they purchase the senior band, they get a free download of our app, which is available for iOS and Android. That's great. And with the app, you get the um, you get the free downloads of our firmware, so you can okay. keep the senior band up to date. It's a product that's going to continue growing with you, so you get access to the new applications that that we'll be releasing throughout in the future. Oh, that's huge! Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, how often do you foresee hardware updates being necessary? That's a great question. You know, we're always um, doing. Uh, we're very strong in research and development. Um, so we're working on, you know, always working on new technology. Um, right now, we're we got this. Uh, we have the Cineband S in the market. Um, but you know, uh, stay tuned to us, and uh, we'll definitely be letting people know when something new is coming soon. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. That 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 segues into my next question, which is what what is next? Where where <laughs> things headed? Yeah. Great what's segue. 2018 <laughs> gonna bring? I'm so curious. Well, like I mentioned, you know, we, we're doing a lot of research and development uh, with partnership with key partners and developing and, and enhancing our core technology around sonar and echolocation as well as through haptics. Uh, we're constantly, um, you know, working uh, with our user community to learn about improving our apps and then extending the value through some of those apps. You know, maybe we'll be developing new apps around navigation, um, activity tracking. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of new apps um, in technology that we're going to be developing to continue supporting mobility and navigation through the Suniban. That's awesome. That's so great. Thank are you. We, are, is Sunu, um, or are you guys going to be at any upcoming conferences? Yes, we're going to be at ATIA uh, in Orlando. Um, I'm going to be also at the um, AFB Leadership Conference in uh, Virginia, and uh, look for us at, at CSUN as well. Oh, great. Excellent. Um, so that's really exciting. So people have a lot of different ways that they can find you and try it out, but how could people contact you or get more information? Do you have a website? Are you on social media? Oh, yeah, definitely. We're all, we're all, we're all over the place. <laughs> so we're, we're on the web at um, sunu.com. Uh, so you can you can find us at you know at sunu.com. Um, check out our Facebook page. We have a lot of content videos that we that we uh, share on Facebook. Um, you know we're on YouTube as well. In fact, you know we work with um, a variety of folks who are doing independent reviews of the Sunu band. And you know mm -hmm. uh, check out Sam uh, at the Blind Life. Um, he's an independent reviewer. You know I have a couple of videos with Sam there uh, on his channel at the Blind Life great content, but we also have other folks um, who are producing awesome videos on their own about Sunu, and you know, there's there's just a lot out there, um, as well as articles, news, um, interviews um, yeah, with the Sunu, and testimonies of folks who have used the Sunu band. That's really neat, that's, and that's a lot of great wonderful. information for people who aren't going to be able to be there in person at some of these conferences, so um, this is this was really, really wonderful to learn more about, and uh, to learn more about you as well, and you have such a an excellent background to kind of be in this world to mm -hmm. develop these types of tools and do it in such um, kind of a a unique way, but also just it, there's so much that can be done with haptics and echolocation, and just um, there's a lot of innovation in this, which is great. Yeah. We're very excited. I mean, we're definitely going to be the leaders in in haptics and assistive technologies. Um, this is the future where we're headed. Um, and we're definitely, you know, excited and eager to to continue developing new and innovative technologies. Yeah, that's really exciting. Thank you. Uh, 
I can't, I can't wait to see what, uh, what comes next, uh, you know, and, and actually to, uh, I'm very eager now to, to, uh, to sit and, and have a, have a play with your Sunu band. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like amazing technology. Awesome. Um, I'm curious if, if you have, we, we work with a, a lot of developers. We work with, uh, you know, people in all over the education field, but definitely a lot of STEM folks. Um, I'm wondering either, either developers or, or folks in more the academia side, do you have any, any advice for those folks in terms of, uh, um, building an inclusive world and, and, and approaching things uh, with, with true accessibility in mind? Wow, that's a great question. And, you know, I would say get out of the building. Um, that's the first thing that I always try to do is get out of my building, um, go talk to people, um, go visit events, get, part, get, get involved in your community, uh, get involved with organizations who are doing activities for blind or or even just inclusivity in general. You know, it could be uh, motor, it could be learning, it could be anything that you can pick. Um, but getting out of the building is the first big step. It gets you talking to individuals in the community, exchanging ideas. And through that exchange and dialogue, you're going to then come out and be able to test whatever idea that you have. An idea is only an idea, right? If you don't go out and test it, you don't, you don't go put it, um, you know, on, on the road with folks. And, you know, that's where, that's where the real innovation starts happening is when you start putting your idea in front of people, they start evaluating, they start testing it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's frustrating at times. It's hard to hear the, 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 the news that, you know, maybe your idea wasn't the best or, no, that doesn't work. Uh, or I have to iterate that idea. But the awesome thing is that you learn, you iterate, and what's coming next is even better than what you started out with. Absolutely. Definitely. Trial and error, trial and error. Mm -hmm. We so appreciate all of your time and the work that you're doing, your insight, your experience. Thank you for sharing your expertise and, and your, your feedback and, and all the knowledge that you've gained over the years. Thank yeah. you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show, and oh, you know, I'm looking course. forward to I'm looking forward to meeting you guys in person and oh, coming yeah. here, visiting you, uh -huh. um, and to to future to future um, events that, or or activities that we could do. Definitely, Excellent. definitely. We appreciate you, you having having you uh, having you on the show. This could have gone on for another four hours. This was <laughs> this was so great. Thank you. Yeah, it really was. Um, so. We will be in touch and we will definitely see you soon. And we can't wait to see what's next for you guys. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, we, we look forward to it. And again, you know, please keep in touch. Let me know how it can be helpful to you guys. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to, to a visit and meeting you in person and yeah, and just exploring the possibilities. Sure. Always, always, definitely. always. Thank you, Fernando. Thank you so much, Fernando. We hope you have a great, great day and we appreciate you coming on, on Accessibilities. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, we look forward to hearing from you. You can write to us at atc at umass.edu. Until next time.